Father, I love that song. When the waves of this life come crashing in and we feel like we're being tossed about, we feel lost and, and helpless and hopeless and confused, you remain our steadfast anchor. I was just thinking of Romans 8, Lord, as we were singing that song, that nothing, nothing in all of creation would ever separate us from the love of God in You, our Lord. You are the anchor that holds us to the Father. You are the anchor that sees us through to the end. You're the anchor that helps us cross the river of death. You ground us. You secure us. And we praise You for that, God. Not only are we totally unable to save ourselves, we're totally unable to keep ourselves safe. But You not only save us, You Yourself keep us safe. We praise You and thank You again. I also confess this morning, God, that I'm thankful that You use broken and imperfect vessels to do Your bidding. That you do value sincerity and honesty and humility. That you allow your word to go forth even in the midst of unworthy people, which we all are, God. But in your grace, you allow your word to be exposed and come alive. And be applied by your spirit so that we would be stirred awake and pulled out of our sinful slumber and turned towards you. Would you do that to us this morning? Turn us towards you so that sin would melt away, so that distractions would melt away, so that burdened hearts would melt away or neglectful hearts would be aroused to to consider Your wonder and the enjoyment of knowing You and walking with You. Do all these things, Lord, that only You can do through Your Word. No eloquent speech. No passion. No amount of knowledge will bring those things about. Only You bring those things about. And we ourselves petition You humbly this morning to bring them about. To do these things in such a way that only you might receive glory, that we would also be edified and brought into your presence. Help us, O oh Lord, now to draw near. And we ask you in your grace to draw near to us. In Jesus' name, amen. I invite you to take your Bibles with me, open them to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1. We do have a pulpit on stage now that's mainly for me to hide behind should you desire to throw anything uh, or spit or hurl insults. Uh, it's also something for me to lean on that doesn't fall over. So um, we'll try it out and see how it goes. Colossians chapter 1, down into verse 9 through verse 14, a very, very rich text of Scripture. In fact, the rest of Colossians begins to change in tone and approach 
and uh, content, really. And Paul's writing here becomes more and more uh, rich and abundant and Christ-centered and um, just overall moving. It makes it difficult to walk through, uh, to be honest, because we want to consider each part so carefully because of how rich each section of it is. And yet, it's so refreshing to walk through because we get to drink deeply and freely again of the fountain of Christ. And, and there's where we found life, find life and, and nourishment and health and, and all the things that we need to continue on. So, the tempo begins to change here a little bit. The purpose begins to change a little bit. The content begins to change a little bit. The way Paul writes and focuses begins to change a little bit. This morning, we're only going to try and tackle verse 9 and 10, though verses 9 through 14 all go together. But for the sake of attempted clarity, we only want to look at these two verses, 9 and 10, considering really what Paul's main central theme is. The structure of this um, section of Colossians 1 moves from thanksgiving that he's been giving in verse 3 through 8. Remember, he's, he's saying, I thank God for these good and glorious things that I see in you, things that only God can bring about, namely faith and love and hope. And now in verse 9, he expresses a desire for them. And he expresses how he wants that desire to be accomplished, both in prayer and then as we move into verse 10 through 14, exhortation. This morning, we will only consider the desire as it's coupled with prayer. Paul really addresses here the great pursuit and great desire of every Christian. The end of our Christian existence, the goal, the aim of our Christian living. I got to thinking this week as I was studying what most of the world would consider the aim of human existence. And I stumbled upon a um, section of Aristotle's teaching. Aristotle's an ancient philosopher. And he attempted to address the very purpose of human life. This uh, particular author named Edward Yonkins summarizes Aristotle's teaching like this. He says, Aristotle teaches that each man's life has a purpose and that the function of one's life is to attain that purpose. We might agree with Aristotle to that point. Each one of us has a purpose in life. We might differ on him in this next uh, sentence. He says that the purpose of life is earthly happiness or flourishing that, be, that can be achieved via reason or knowledge and the acquisition of virtue. And all of his philosophizing, if, that's, if I can use that word, Aristotle comes up with the purpose of human life to be earthly happiness and flourishing. Gained through knowledge. For Aristotle and many ancient philosophers like him and many modern philosophers like him, they would actually simplify that statement and go on in other places to say that the end and purpose of human existence is to gain knowledge for personal fulfillment. And in their mind, knowledge itself, human intellect, would be uh, the end goal of all of our striving. 
Because there we find, again, personal fulfillment and, and all the benefits of such things like humanity and satisfaction in our existence and, and on and on and on. That belief has taken on many different forms throughout the centuries, but the principle has held the same. If you want to find purpose, you must gain knowledge. Knowledge is your purpose. That's the same temptation that happens in the Garden of Eden from the serpent. Knowledge is what will make you find your purpose. Knowledge is your purpose. What was the temptation of that wicked serpent in the garden? Eat of this tree and your eyes will be opened and you will what? Know good and evil like the Lord. You'll gain your knowledge. You'll have the height of human achievement. We know from the truth of Scripture as Christians that knowledge is not the end of human existence, is it? Knowledge is merely the means to the end. What is the end? It is Christ Himself. Chiefly a relationship with Christ. A knowledge that's far beyond mere intellect and brain power that extends down into experience of the soul. A.W. Tozer wrote a wonderful classic book called The Pursuit of God. And I would summarize his writing as this. A real spiritual experience with the real person of God in a real relationship is the height of human life. And Tozer is absolutely right. A real spiritual experience. That's a phrase he uses often. With the real person of God. Another phrase he uses often. In a real relationship. Another phrase he uses often. Is the height of human life. Not an abstract fabricated relationship with God. Not an ideal or abstract understanding of some distant God. And not some abstract uh, made up spiritual experience. But a real spiritual experience with the real God of creation. Existing in a real relationship with Him through Christ. That is the end of human experience. The height of our existence. That is the goal and the aim of our entire existence. We, church, are created to know God. And in that creation, in that purpose of creation, we are also created to enjoy Him and honor Him with our lives. That is where we find life and fulfillment and purpose. Often when... I engage with people in conversation who struggle with knowing their purpose in life or struggle with finding a sense of fulfillment or satisfaction in life. You know what it often boils down to in my estimation? They're not enjoying God or honoring Him with their life. If you're confused about your purpose and your fulfillment, if you feel like you're wandering about, it's likely two things exist in your life right now. Either extreme neglect of walking with God or extreme sin that's preventing you from knowing God. Occasionally, God will hide Himself for a time or a season to discipline us for sin or bring us out of the, the throes of sin. 
and to remind us that we really do need to know him and honor him and enjoy him if we are going to find any sort of meaning in this existence before heaven. This is what Paul become, uh, comes to address here in Colossians chapter 1, specifically in verse 10. Let's look at verse 10. That's the purpose and point of the passage, and we're going to backbuild a little bit. Verse 10, he says, I, I'm desirous of these things in verse 9 that we're going to look at in a moment. And I want them for you so that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him. The goal and height of Christian living is not your morality, your knowledge, it's not even heaven. It's living a life that's fully pleasing to Christ. Isn't that our great burning desire as born-again Christians? Don't you long for the Lord to be pleased with your life? Don't you, you thirst for that day when you stand before the glorious Christ and He says, I am pleased. Absolutely. Because God has put that earnest desire within the heart of every regenerate person to live in such a way that Christ would be fully pleased. Fully means totally and completely and comprehensively pleased and delighted in us, which, by the way, is nothing less than submission to him. If you want the simplest version of pleasing Christ with your life, it is nothing less than submission to him. And submission doesn't carry a negative sense in, in that way. It is a very positive thing to submit yourself to Christ. That's where you find abundant life. And fulfillment and purpose. So as Christians now, the, the chief pursuit of our existence becomes this. Honoring Christ, glorifying Christ, living in a way that is fully pleasing to Christ, however you want to, to say that. That's what our heart beats after. That's what our souls thirst for. We long to be a delight to Jesus. It's imperative at this point that I stop and say, that Paul is not advocating that we can please or earn favor with God in our own standing in the sense of salvation. That's not what the verse is about. He's not saying, if you want to be saved, you must live a certain way uh, and, and then earn favor with God. In other passages, Paul's very clear that the only way we can absolutely earn saving favor before God is through faith in Christ alone. Romans 5.1 talks about us having peace with God now, but we only have peace through Jesus Christ. Not through our works or our abilities or our skills or our morality or our knowledge or anything of, of that nature. Only through Christ do we find favor before God. Only through Christ can we please God. However, as this letter is written to Christians in, in the Colossian church, there is this increasing desire as born-again children of God to please our Heavenly Father. Even our children on this earth desire to some extent to please their father and mother. Most people who grow up without a father or a mother in the home look back in their life and long to know that they made their parents proud because they never had the chance to. 
We long to make our Heavenly Father proud. And so it becomes our bottom line objective to live lives that are fully pleasing to Christ. And all that we do and all that we say, even in all that we think and desire, we want Christ to be honored. If that is not a burning desire in your heart, examine your salvation. Because a fruit of your conversion is that it will be a burning desire in your heart. Sometimes weaker and sometimes stronger, but nonetheless true. We desire our God to be honored by our conduct, our desires, our motives, our words, our thoughts, and anything else we can put in that blank. So Paul writes in verse 10, and he expresses this desire for this church. I've heard good things about you, verse 4, verse 5 of chapter 1. But I still desire, in verse 10, for you to be fully pleasing to the Lord. How are we fully pleasing to the Lord? It's by walking in a manner worthy of the Lord. Walk is an intentional word that Paul uses. It's used in numerous places in the Bible, most often in the Old Testament. Some Bible translations have tried to simplify things and they replace that word walk with live as if Paul was saying that I want you to live in a manner worthy of the Lord. That's good and, and okay. But it doesn't convey exactly what Paul's trying to convey or the Scripture tries to convey when it uses that illustrating word walk. Walk implies a process and a journey and an activity. Sometimes it implies work. Paul says, as you're on this journey, I want you to be actively moving through life in a manner that's worthy of the Lord. Actively seeking to live by the standard of Christ. You know what's interesting in Paul's theology throughout the New Testament is that his favorite word, the one he uses most often, is grace. But grace does not mean we lower the standard of Christian living. Rather, he elevates it here, doesn't he? He elevates it to the very standard of Jesus himself. In several other of his New Testament letters, Paul uses this phrase, walk in a manner worthy of. In Ephesians 4, he says, walk in a manner worthy of your calling. In Philippians 1.27, he says, walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. In 1 Thessalonians 2.12, he says, walk in a manner worthy of God. But here, the standard is Jesus Himself. Walk in a manner worthy of the Lord Jesus. The reason is because the only way to please God with our lives is to live by the standard and example and teaching of Jesus. You will not please God any other way. We say this often, or I guess I should say I say this often, and I say it often because I want you to be aware and warned and not caught off guard, and I want you to be able to distinguish between the reality of constant falsehood and absolute truth. So I'll say it again. The world floats different creeds and options of living your way all the time. All the time you're being sold 
on the best way to do this and the best way to do that and the best way to experience this and the best way to live in that way and the most satisfying kind of existence and on and on and on and on. Promising vain happiness and pleasure and, and whatever else you're looking for. The truth is, we are most satisfied, in fact, only satisfied when God is pleased with us. And the only way God will be pleased with us is if we live and walk in a manner that's worthy of the Lord. If we live to the standard of Christ Himself. We are called to a high standard. But it's in that standard of living that we actually find satisfaction. Please the Lord with your life. Be fully pleasing to the Lord. Bring your thoughts and your words and your desires in submission to the Gospel. Let yourself be transformed by the truth of Scripture. Let the old self be ripped off if it must so that the new self can be put on. All that Christ might be honored in you. Walk in a manner worthy of Jesus. The question now becomes, how do we do that, Paul? How do we begin to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord that we might be totally, completely, comprehensively pleasing to Him? How can our lives be pleasurable to the Lord? Well, this is where we get into the two different ways Paul begins to address that in this passage. Verses 10 through 14, he does that by way of exhortation. This is what that life should look like. Bearing fruit, increasing in the knowledge of God, having endurance and patience, rejoicing in salvation, those sorts of things. We're going to look at those things in the coming weeks. The first way that Paul expresses the accomplishment of his desire for them is through prayer. That's verse 9. He prays for the very foundation and the very fuel of the Christian life. That is that we would be filled, verse 9, filled with the knowledge of God's will. How do you begin to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord? Living up to the standard of Christ, fully pleasing to Him? You are filled, first and foremost, with the knowledge of God's will. In the 19th and 20th century, a sort of, well, really a modern form of Christian mysticism began to take root and increase rapidly. Really increase in ways that the church hasn't really experienced in her history. Christian mysticism is, is nothing new. It, it was found in various forms in the 1st and 2nd century, most notably in the teaching of Gnosticism, where Christianity is intermingled with this kind of mysterious, mystic, spiritual sense. But it really didn't begin to take root as we see it today until the 19th or 20th century. It took such a root and it grew so rapidly in the last couple hundred years that now whole denominations and churches are built on Christian mysticism, Christian mystic beliefs. It's even advanced so rapidly in our society that it can be found in most any church and among most any believer. 
So in the 19th and 20th century, all of a sudden, we find the Christian faith hinging more on things like feeling and emotion than doctrine or absolute truth. All of a sudden, objective understanding is replaced with subjective interpretations. And the average churchgoer or those exposed to this Christian mystic belief system begin to ask a question that becomes less about truth and the standard of God and more about a person's feelings or emotions. This has led to widespread confusion among the people of God. Now, in today's times, instead of a clear and concrete faith that is built on absolute objective truth, now there's instead a pursuit of some inner sense of closeness to God. Or some sort of impression in a mystic, unexplainable, subjective way. Or hidden meanings found tucked away in various verses of Scripture. I don't want you to get me wrong. Emotions are very important, not only for our existence, but they are to God. God created us with emotions and feelings. And very much so, especially according to Jonathan Edwards, our emotions and our feelings are influenced by the gospel, right? We become passionate people and joyous people and and excited people because of what Christ has done for us. So we don't dismiss our emotions or our feelings. We don't dismiss God's leadership in our lives, personal and intimate leadership in our lives. But hear me clearly, Christianity is less about some strange mystical feeling that you're trying to discern. And it is more about a real and understandable faith that you can know. So don't get caught up in irreverent babbling and mystical impressions that you're trying to discern all the time. And immerse yourself in things that you can know like the Bible. Where you find there the person and character of God. And the saving purposes and plans of Christ. And the working, true working of the Holy Spirit. I tell you all of that to come down to this very point of saying this. The Bible is absolutely very concerned with your mind. And perhaps more than what most of us realize, the Bible is concerned with what you know and don't know. It does care about your brains. It cares about your intellect. God gave you brains for a reason. He gave us the ability to reason. He gave us logic. He gave us understanding so that we might be like Him. And the Bible is concerned with you engaging with the truth, isn't it? The Bible wants you to know right from wrong, truth from falsehood. It wants you to engage more than just your feelings and emotions. Don't stop short. God wants your mind fully immersed in the things of Scripture. In Acts chapter 17, verse 11, we encounter these exemplary people, Jewish people at the time, who hear Paul preach, they're called Bereans. And what do they do in verse 11 of Acts chapter 17? They go back and they what? Examine 
or study the Scriptures to see if what Paul said is actually true. What are they commended for? Their study of the Scriptures. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13, Peter is starting out the, the main thrust and content of his letter. And what does he say to his people? Prepare your minds for action and be sober-minded. In other words, he says, get ready to think. The, the literal language of that verse is, gird up the loins of your mind. Be ready to be active in your understanding and intellect and in your learning. The Bible cares about what you know. And that is because truth is not a subjective feeling. It is a concrete reality. And so Paul prays for their knowledge. I pray, I petition, I ask God that you may know something. That your mind down deep into your heart may be engaged in something. After all, the Bible doesn't just stop with your brain. It goes on down into your soul. But where does it begin? It does begin in your brain. Hearing the Word of God. Understanding the Word of God. Paul prays that this desire might be accomplished first through the foundation of their knowledge. Specifically, their knowledge of God's will. I'm praying for you, he says in verse 9. Since we've heard, connecting this explicitly right back to verse 3 and 4, I thank God for you when I pray for you. Now by verse 9, I petition God for you when I pray for you. I praise God for the good that's working in you, and I plead with God to keep working good in you. And so as I regularly pray, I'm petitioning, I'm pleading, I'm asking, I'm begging that you may be filled with the knowledge of God's will. Just a side note real quick. That's something worthy to pray for. Our prayers are so often shallow and trivial and purely concerned with just temporary matters. This is an eternal matter Paul cares about and he prays for. Something weighty. Something important of serious value. I pray not for your feelings. I have a specific petition for the foundation of a life lived worthily for the Lord that is your knowledge of God's will that you would first and foremost be filled with it. Now, I personally don't think Paul is praying that you would, you or I would have a full knowledge of God's will because we cannot have a full knowledge of all the will of God. Rather, I think he's praying that we ourselves would be filled or in other, filled or in other words consumed entirely and totally by God's will. You and I may not know all of God's will. In fact, we will not know all of God's will, but we are to be totally consumed by God's will. By understanding and knowing God's purpose for humanity. Paul wants us to be moved by it and directed by it. Submissive to it. Now, I must confess that the will of God is not something that's easy to understand. It's rather complex. And for the sake of clarity, I want to talk about the will of God just for a moment, if you'll let me. The will of God exists in two types, and it must be understood in two general ways. The two types of God's will are 
the decreed parts of God's will and then what I'm going to call the revealed or expressed parts of God's will. Revealed things or expressed things of God's desires or wishes in Scriptures uh, are certainly defined as a part of His will, but they don't necessarily ever come to pass. For instance, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 4. God wills or desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. The problem we have with that is that not all people are saved and not all people come to a knowledge of the truth. In another place, I think it's Isaiah, it says, God doesn't desire or wish that any should perish. The problem is, people perish. And they do enter into eternity in punishment. Does that mean, therefore, that God's will doesn't always come to pass? Does that mean that God could desire something, but not be able to accomplish it? But we know what the Bible says. The Bible says no. God accomplishes every detail of His will that He so desires. So we have a complexity in understanding God's will. There is an element as expressed in Scripture where God desires and wishes things that don't actually come to pass, but they are nonetheless the true will of God. So we might call them the expressed or revealed will of God that isn't necessarily put in motion. Secondly, we might understand God's will as His decreed will or decretive will. It's where God formally and officially does ordain a thing to happen. You might think of the end times. We might not know how they're going to come about exactly, but God has decreed that they come about exactly as He wills them to. And not one thing will shift. You might even think of the cross of Christ and the crucifixion of our Lord in Acts chapter 2. Peter preaches and he tells the Jewish leaders and and people at that time that Christ was delivered up what? What? according to the definite plan and will of God. God does formally, officially ordain things to happen, and not one ounce of that plan will ever come off course. Perhaps I'm just confusing you. Perhaps that's my point, to confuse you. To tell you that the will of God is a very complex issue, and it's not easily understood. Why is that? Because none of us have the mind of God. He exists far above us. There's two general ways we might try to understand these two types of God's will. We might view them one as universal, meaning a will for all people, and we might too view them as specific, meaning a will for individual people. And we do find both in Scripture. The specific or individual will we might see expressed in the callings of different individuals like Abraham, David, and Peter and Paul. They experienced specific individual callings from God. They had a specific individual will for their life. Universal wills we also find. Like the Great Commission. That's given to the whole church and all the people of God. We are all to share the Gospel. God's will is complex. And it's not easy to discern all the time in Scripture What is being said in the will of God? So, what is Paul saying in verse 9 when he says the will of God? 
It's often an issue that confuses many people. Most of the time we have people come up lamenting the fact that they don't know God's will for their life. That's what they want to know most, God's will for their life. Paul prays and says, I hope you are filled with the knowledge of God's will. Is he talking about specific wills for the individual Christians in Colossae? I don't think so. Douglas Moo, I think, is right when he writes about this verse in his commentary. He says, what Paul has in mind is not some particular or special direction for one's life, as we often use the phrase God's will, but rather he desires a deep and abiding understanding of the revelation of Christ and all that Jesus means for the universe and for the Colossians. That's absolutely right. Because Paul is combating false teaching with this letter. A false teaching that claims to know the will of God and have a, have a unique truth from God. But Paul writes and he says, I earnestly plead and petition with the Lord that you would be filled absolutely up to the brim, overflowing with a knowledge of the will of God in Christ Jesus. And what is God's will in Christ? The redemption of your soul. And the redemptive plan for humanity. If anything, church, if we are to be grounded and confident and filled up with the knowledge of anything, it should be that we belong to a saving God who desires sinners to be saved. That He has sent His only Son purely out of love and glory so that sinners might be redeemed and brought into a right relationship with God. We aren't going to know everything of the will of God for our individual lives or for the world. But we absolutely know God wants sinners saved. He so much wants it, He sent His Son to save those who are lost and to set them on the path of eternity securely. So how can I live a life worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him? It starts with being saturated with a knowledge of the saving desires of God. Let an understanding, a deep, meditated understanding of God's saving desires through Christ influence the way you view this life that you live. Bring your understanding in submission to the Gospel. Bring your perspectives and your worldview in submission to the gospel. Let the gospel interpret your relationships and your hobbies and all those things we talk about all the time. Be saturated, filled up with as much knowledge and understanding as you can of God's saving purposes. Consider just how grotesque sin is. So that you might consider how beautiful grace is. Consider how how pricey and costly the cross of Christ is. So that you might know how much God really does love to save the lost. It is not elementary or futile or lifeless to meditate and study the gospel. It's the very foundation of a life that honors and pleases God. What's the secret to walking with God in joyful abundance? It's an ever-increasing understanding of 
the gospel. You can never talk about it too much. You can never study it too much. You can never read of it too much. You can never think of it too much. It's the very hinge pin, the very center of our relationship with God, the very center of our understanding of who we are and how we relate to God and where we're going. It tells us what we are to do, how we are to worship, how we are to carry ourselves, how we are to think, what we are to speak about, what we are to be passionate about. How do we gain such knowledge? Let me wrap up very quickly with this. Paul prays, petitions, asks God that they would be filled with the knowledge of His will. How does that happen? It doesn't happen purely with study alone. You will not know the will of God with just simple intellect or dedication. There are many in the world, many in the church who study the Bible thoroughly who do not know God. It takes something more than simple study. It takes this combination that Paul mentions at the end of verse 9. I pray that you would be filled with the knowledge of God's will in all or with all or through all spiritual wisdom and understanding, that coupling of those two things together. It almost seems redundant, but it's a phrase we find in other parts of the Scripture by numerous different authors. For example, we find it in James chapter 3, verse 13. When James is writing about heavenly wisdom, he asks the question, who is wise and understanding among you? As if they go together. In fact, our Lord uses it that combination in Luke chapter 10, verse 21. He uses it in a negative sense. Lord, he's praying. He says, God, I thank you that you've hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. In the Bible, this combination is on purpose. And it's meant to communicate through the distinction of each word and their definitions. It's meant to communicate one singular thought. Let me save some time and summarize it like this. Wisdom and understanding are both gifts from God. I would have us turn to James chapter 1 and James chapter 3 where James so clearly talks about heavenly wisdom. He says it is freely and generously given by God. He even in chapter 3 contrasts it with worldly wisdom. The, the kind of worldly wisdom Jesus references in Luke 10. He says it's not selfish or boastful because that kind of wisdom, James says, is earthly unspiritual and demonic. Instead, heavenly wisdom that comes down from God is first pure and peaceable and gentle and open to reason and, and all of these other godly traits and characteristics. Wisdom, as the Bible uh, talks about it, which by the way the Bible esteems it very highly, is wisdom that comes from God. And it has godly traits about it. And it is a right or true Knowledge that is put into just judgment and discernment and practice. In other words, wisdom is right knowledge that is rightly applied by God's grace. Understanding is the same. It does involve the mind, but it involves a little bit more of that when we consider it in Scripture. Our understanding comes from 
God. 1 John chapter 5, verse 20 alludes to that. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 7, Paul issues a teaching to Timothy, and then he tells him at the end, turn to the Lord who will give you understanding for all these things if you don't understand. Understanding is that mental process of both comprehension and familiarity where we know fully what we're engaging with. So when we find them combined together, God is saying with wisdom and understanding, I want you to fully comprehend and rightly apply true, real knowledge. But he uses this word to describe wisdom and understanding that places these two things out of our realm of accomplishment. He says you must have spiritual wisdom and understanding. Which means none of us can have enough understanding or enough wisdom on our own to glean the things of God. It must be a work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul spends an ample amount of time talking there about the things in this world or the things of God are not understood by the people of this world. They're not understood by natural understanding. They're spiritual things that must be spiritually discerned and communicated by the Spirit of God. All of that to come to this point of saying, you and I have a great calling to live a life worthy of the Lord and so please Him and bring Him delight and bring Him honor and bring Him glory. And the way to do that is to be fully immersed and and increasingly understanding of the Gospel of God. But you cannot understand the Gospel of God unless the Spirit gives you understanding both in your mind and through the wisdom of right application. God's Spirit will make His Word known to you. He will make the Gospel known to you. He'll give you understanding. He'll apply it rightly and give you the experience. And only then can you begin to enter the journey of walking with the Lord. Only then can you begin to gain the knowledge of God's perfect will summarized in the redemptive plan and work of Christ. And only in that place, when you are saturated with the gospel truth, will you begin to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him. Christian, don't think that you must just do better. Don't look at Paul's desire of walking in the manner of the worthy of the Lord, being pleasing to Him. Don't look at that and think, I have to be better. I have to do more. Look at it all together and say, I must submit to the gospel of God and let it have its transforming way in my life. And only then can I please God. Are you struggling with pleasing God? Submit yourself to the work of Christ. Rest in passages like Romans 8 that tell of the richness of God's love and mercy and grace. You have a hard time believing that God would love you? Pray that He would strengthen your faith in His saving work. In all things, at all times, submit your thinking and your words and your conduct to the Gospel. That is how we please God with our lives. That is the only way 
we please God with our lives. As we walk through the rest of this passage, Paul will lay out some characteristics of this sort of life. What does it look like? It looks like bearing fruit, increasing in the knowledge of God, endurance and patience, rejoicing in salvation. Those are things that, that exemplify this kind of life, but none of those are possible without first this spiritual understanding of the gospel of God. So Christian, if you are born again, praise God that He saw fit in His own will to give you an understanding of the Gospel through His Spirit. Because you have entered into the great calling of pleasing God with your life. That's a grace. That's a gift. That's a joy. And that's an honor. That we might please our Lord and Savior. That only comes because He's called you to it through His Son, Jesus. Maybe you aren't pleasing the Lord with your life, and you know that. You know that my private conduct is wretched. And I delight too much in sin. And I indulge in my flesh. And I'm a liar. And I'm a gossip. And I'm a slanderer. And I'm an addict. And I'm all these things. And I know God's not pleased with me. The answer for you is not to clean yourself up. The answer for you is to come to Christ. And let the Spirit do His work of putting the Gospel and the saving work of Christ into your heart. You can be saved. And God doesn't demand perfection to come to Him. He demands faith. Faith in the work of Jesus Christ to forgive you of all your sinfulness. You and I will never be good enough. But God will, through His Spirit, apply the knowledge of His will. He will apply His redemptive work. And that is where we begin to live a life of fulfillment and satisfaction and honoring God. Lord, Your Word is rich. And sometimes, frankly, hard to get through because there's so many thoughts that can be shared and so many different things that can be brought out. I just hope and pray that Your Spirit would do the work that only You can do. You alone, Lord, can make Your Word applicable. You alone can make it understandable. You alone can help us to know it. You do care about what we know. Do we know You or not? Do we know the Gospel or not? You do care about the way we live. Do we honor You with our lives or not? Help us to see that the only way to do that is the foundation of the Gospel. To first know in our hearts and our minds and by experience Your saving reality. Would you do that work this morning? In Jesus' name, amen.